Well, good morning, church. Join me in Luke chapter 2, if you would. I'm glad you made the choice to gather with God's people on Christmas morning. Christmas usually falls on Sunday once every seven years or so. That's just how the calendar works. And the plan will always be for us to meet together, uh, as the church does on the Lord's Day. That's just what we do. But this one is particularly special in my mind. There's a, a quirk in the calendar that's caused by, I don't know, leap year or something, but Christmas won't fall on Sunday again for another 11 years. 2033 is the next time that we'll get to gather together on Christmas morning on a Sunday as a church family. So if you're here and you are in second grade or above, you'll only be here because you've come back from college the next time that we do this. And so now that all the parents are depressed, um, we will move on into our time in the Word, no, really. But, um, and because this is a, a bit of a rare Sunday, we've opted to be as traditional as we can be today, right? We've sang hymns, we, uh, uh, directly out of uh, the hymnal, we didn't really do any newer songs today, and we're going to read uh, a very traditional Christmas text this morning, at least the beginning of the Christmas story. We're going to read Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we will read all the way through about verse 7, uh, and then we'll spend a few uh, moments in prayer together before we dig into God's Word today. Luke 2 begins this way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This was the first registration that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, so that everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. This is God's word. Would you pray with me over the reading of it? Father, we come thankful, we come grateful for your word today, and we pray that on this Christmas morning, that you would speak to us from your word, that your Holy Spirit would encourage our hearts, challenge us, convict us of our sin, grow our affection for you and for the people around us today. God, we thank you for the peace that was won, for the hope that was delivered to your people at Christmas. And Lord, even though these truths are so familiar that this story is one that, that many of us have heard already this year, we've heard it many times over the course of our lives, Lord, we pray that we would be struck through your Holy Spirit by new truths this morning, by, by maybe something we had forgotten or something we need to be reminded of. God, perhaps there's even one within the sound of my voice that isn't as familiar with this story. And God, we pray that, that your truth would captivate them as well. Father, let it be your Holy Spirit and your words that convict and change our hearts and not anything that I would say or really any words of man, God, because we know that it's only through your Holy Spirit that true life change can come, that new life can be created and that real spiritual fruit can, can come to bear. And so, Father, we pray that you would work today in our hearts through your Spirit, and by your Son, in whose name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 
Well, I have a, uh, what I hope is a simple goal for this morning, and that's for us all to be reminded of God's purpose behind this day. God was just in control, uh, just as in control of the events of that first Christmas morning as He was when He was speaking the universe into existence, ju- just as in control as He is today, as a matter of fact. And His purpose was to deliver hope to His people. Our family watched the greatest movie ever produced this week. It's a, not Home Alone, that's a good one, but we watched It's a Wonderful Life. It's been around for a while, it was made in 1946, and according to our kids, it was in gray and white. But it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, cancel whatever else you were going to do today, and go home and watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's a fantastic movie, and there's a time in the movie where there's an angel showing the main character, George Bailey, what the world would be like without him in it. And the angel knows everything. He knows where George's mom would be. He knows what happened to his father, what happened to his brother. He knows where George's wife would have ended up. He knows it all, and he shows it to George for a purpose. Every little moment, every little scene, every little movement had a purpose. And I think I thought about that a lot as I reread the Christmas story this week. It's It's comforting to know that God has a purpose in each little moment, each little movement of this Christmas story, of this incarnation story. Because let's face it, Christmas can be crazy, right? I mean, some of you got up at 5 o'clock this morning just to be able to open presents and then clean up the mess before you came to church. Christmas can be a crazy time. As a writer in a Delaware newspaper captured uh, really well a few years ago, he wrote, If you enjoy stress, the American Christmas tradition is for you. The celebration generally goes as follows. Spend a month or three tearing your hair out, coming up with gifts for everyone, then shopping, trying to figure out how you're going to pay for said shopping, juggling travel plans and coordinating family get-togethers, creating personalized family Christmas cards and mailing them to everyone you know, taking your kids to stand in line to see Santa, and generally staggering around under a cultural burden of consumerism that retailers call... The magic of Christmas. Sounds fair, right? The Christmas story in Luke can serve to recenter us in the midst of that madness and the fog of war that can sometimes be Christmas. And maybe you're on the other side of that now, and that's all behind you, and you're just feeling peace today, and I hope that that's where you are. Not that, by the way, any of those things, Santa and presents and Christmas cards and all those things, not that they're bad. Those things are actually really good things, but they can serve to distract us from the main thing when it comes to Christmas. When Luke describes the virgin birth of the Savior of the world, he does so in the most ordinary language possible, really using only six sentences in the English translation we just read. You see, Luke knows that the facts of Jesus' birth are so incredible that the story itself It demonstrates the sovereignty of God in such an awesome manner that he doesn't need to embellish. He doesn't need to be a great storyteller. He doesn't need to add flowery language. He just presents us with the truth. And when we see the truth, the truth will blow us away. Hope has been delivered to humanity in Luke 2. God demonstrates his sovereignty over the past and the present and the future affairs of the universe in just these seven verses. Sovereignty just means that God is in control, and and each turn reminds us that God is in control as the events of this first Christmas unfold. I want to point out three reminders 
of God's control, of God's sovereignty. Three reminders in the text today that whatever is going on in your life, whether today is a joyful or a painful day, whether today is a boring or a busy day, whether tomorrow is something you look forward to or it is uncertain and painful, I want to remind you today that God's got this, that God rules over your past, your present, and your future. We see that in God's sovereign decree, God's sovereign setting, and God's sovereign delivery here in Luke 2, 1 through 7. Hope was born into the world that first Christmas, and God was behind it every step of the way. We see in the very beginning of this text that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire, the whole world, should be registered. Caesar Augustus is the most important human that we meet in Luke's gospel. He was the king of the world in their mind anyway, and his kingdom encompassed all of Israel, all the surrounding nations. He was powerful. He was, in fact, worshipped as a god by his people. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he decrees, a decree is just, you know, when the king says something, it, it sort of happens. That's like, you know, when mom or dad say something, it just sort of happens, right? Children, right? My children. Okay, good. Um, so when, when the king says it, it happens. And so the king says everyone has to go, the whole empire, the whole world, the old King James translates it as all the world, should be counted. That's how much the Romans thought of themselves, by the way. The whole known world was their empire. They were the center of their own universe. And the registration that Luke writes about, it was done primarily for the purpose of taxation. Everyone had to be counted so that the Roman accountants could prepare the Roman budget. So the most powerful man in the world declares that all the people in his empire had to return to their ancestral home and be counted. It was homecoming time. How many of you, if, you, if, if uh, we had a king today, which we don't thankfully, but if we had a king and they said, hey, you have to go back to the town where your family is from, how many of you would be packing up the car this morning? I'd be going somewhere in the hills of eastern Kentucky that not even a GPS can find because that's where my dad was from. And many of us would be going back somewhere else as well. Joseph had to go back to where his family was from. By the stroke of the emperor's pen, millions had their lives disrupted. Yet, it's not really Caesar Augustus who's in charge here, is it? You see, church, if we were to read the Bible as the, whole, uh, the, the story of Christ, the way that Christ read Scripture with himself at the center of it, then we're going to recognize that even though Caesar is sovereign in Rome, God is sovereign on earth, and Caesar's decree only goes out because of God's decree. You see, God decreed long before Caesar was ever born, this Caesar anyway, or any Caesar for that matter, God decreed in Genesis 3.15, he said this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. might seem counterintuitive at first, but those are the words that set in motion Joseph and Mary journeying to Bethlehem. You see, those are the words that God spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent after the first sin, after sin had been committed, when he's pronouncing the curse. Actually, the first promise of the gospel in Scripture, that's it, Genesis 3.15, a great verse to underline, highlight, star, put a sparkler on it. I don't know how you mark your Bible, but Genesis 3.15 is a verse you need to have marked. It's the very first gospel promise in Scripture, God promising to put back together the brokenness that humanity brought into the world through sin. 
And God spoke that promise to Satan. And it boldly stated how God was going to fix the problem of sin that entered into the world. God responds to man's rebellion with a threefold curse on Satan, the woman, and the man. To Satan, it's that the the serpent is going to slither on his belly forever. That means a whole bunch of things for Satan. To the woman, pain and childbirth, struggle in your old. To the man, pain and work, thorns and thistles will come up from the ground. To all humans, you will die. That's the curse of Genesis 3, but notice in the middle of that curse, God gives them a beautiful promise. I don't know how you parents do discipline at home, but when my kids have done something that, that they have, they've earned discipline for, that they've earned a consequence for, we don't also give them a present. The grandmother in the room is laughing because that's something a grandmother would do, right? Oh, it's going to be fine. Here's some candy. Oh, okay, that's how my mom would handle it with our children that we're going to go spend a week with now so our kids will all come back ruined. It'll be beautiful. But what God does is as he is proclaiming the curse, he makes a promise. He promises to fix it. He says, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God gives the promise that a singular man will come. He'll be bruised or wounded by the serpent, but in the end, he'll crush his head. God promises to send a deliverer, one who will stand up to the enemy and defeat him, but in the process, he himself will be wounded. And after this promise, God gave them a picture to help them remember the promise. Genesis 3.21, God made clothing from skins for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. You see, what God did there, as he made them garments of skin, something had to die. An innocent animal's blood is shed for Adam and Eve's shame to be covered. That's a picture of what God does for those of us who trust in Christ. If you repent of your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. When you place all your hope in this life and the next on Christ, God clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. And later in Genesis 3, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He put a cherubim with a flaming sword there to keep them from the tree of life. And then the waiting began. God promised the seed of the woman was going to come. When is he going to come? What is he going to look like? How will we recognize him? That's what the whole remainder of the Old Testament is about. It's anticipation. Someone is coming. A deliverer is coming who will defeat Satan. He'll, He'll clothe them with innocence. He'll restore God's people to him. And we meet all sorts of candidates in the Old Testament. God calls a man named Noah. Well, Noah was flawed in a number of ways. God called a man named Abraham. Abraham was a train wreck, but God used him anyway. Then there's the kings and the prophets. But none of them were the Messiah. No, that deliverer was delivered to Bethlehem because of a decree made by the most powerful human on earth at the time. Even though he was that, Caesar Augustus was little more than a pawn on God's chessboard. God needed Mary in Bethlehem. We'll see why in a minute. And to get her there, God had no problem moving the most powerful empire in history to get one girl to the place that he needed her to be. God's sovereign decree in Genesis 3 led to Caesar's decree in Luke 2, and that had to happen for us so that we could see God's sovereign setting. Luke 2, 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David 
which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. Again, this decree Caesar, met, Caesar put out made that, that meant that this rural carpenter and his expectant teenage bride were forced to travel all the way back to his hometown to be registered for this taxation. It had to be a miserable journey. Mary was full term, which means she didn't casually stroll those 80 miles. She trudged. It was a slow, weary, determined journey. Travail, I think, is the word Mike used in his poem. Often you'll see this scene depicted with a donkey. That was certainly possible, but it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. Mary may have used an animal for transportation. We don't know, but whatever their situation, she traveled the distance bearing the heavy knowledge that she was going to deliver this child far from home, far from her family, and from nearly everyone who cared about her. You see, seen through everyday logic, Joseph and Mary were were insignificant nobodies from a nothing town. They were just peasants, really. They were poor, they were uneducated, they were of no account in the eyes of the world. In stark contrast to mighty Caesar sitting on a throne in Rome, lowly Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this this unimportant town to unimportant parents in an unimportant manner that we'll talk about briefly in just a moment. But let me... Let me point out just two things about this birth, about this setting in Bethlehem that, that Luke illustrates for us. First, it's that God doesn't care about your pedigree. God doesn't care about the family you came from. He doesn't care what your social standing is or how much money you have or how skilled you are or what you can do for him. The Bible tells us God chose his people before the foundation of the world. We read that in Ephesians 1. You weren't able to do anything for God before He chose to love you. You weren't able to be impressive. You weren't able to be charming. You weren't able to look a certain way or act a certain way. We don't know why God picked Mary. Anyone God uses, He's using in spite of their shortcomings, not because of their talent. Do you realize that? God doesn't need our talent. God has all the talent that there is. He chooses you because He loves you. God's sovereign love means that you don't have to earn anything. Jesus did the earning. We just do the receiving. And so if you learn nothing from the Christmas story today, remember that God simply loves you because He loves you. He chooses you because He chose you. Mary and Joseph would have never been names that we remembered had God not entered into their lives. They're not significant because they're amazing. They're significant because God is amazing. And that's true for you as well. We have incredibly talented people in this room. But that's not why God has chosen to love you or to use you. God doesn't care what, about your family background. He doesn't care what you came from. He doesn't care what you have done in particular. Because when you repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God promises in His Word that He will save you no matter what your past, no matter what your background is. And the second thing we see from this setting, this trip to Bethlehem, is that God's plan for you is not always going to be convenient. Gentlemen, Joseph walked 80 miles with a pregnant woman. I'm not even going to touch that. Ladies, more importantly, Mary walked 80 miles while nine months pregnant. 
Amen to that, right? Bless her heart. In like the nice sense, not the southern sense. And they did it because God told Micah, and Micah told the world that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You see, when God calls a shot, he doesn't miss. And God's sovereign plan for your life, it might not fit your schedule. It might not fit the picture you painted for your future, but I promise it's going to work out better in the end than whatever you or I cook up on our own. God doesn't care where you came from or what your background is, and he doesn't seem to particularly care about your plans for tomorrow if they're not in accord with his will. We need to resolve, we need to know with certainty, to put it like Luke, that God's sovereign plan will inconvenience us, just like it inconvenienced Mary and Joseph. But if it does, it's exactly what we need. But let's see one more thing before we carry that thought forward. Let's see God's sovereign delivery. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Luke is careful with the facts here, just like he always is. There's three important pieces of information that he, he throws out there that help us grasp God's hand sort of guiding all these events. First, he points out that this was her firstborn son. That's an important phrase, an important truth here, because it reminds us of Jesus' position as the son who was due an inheritance. Now, Joseph and Mary may not leave behind much for Jesus, but if we go over and read the genealogy in Matthew's birth narrative, we're reminded that Jesus is of the family of David. It's that kingly bloodline into which Jesus is born that we're dealing with. I think that's why Luke includes that distinctive firstborn. Second, Mary took her firstborn son and wrapped him tightly in cloth. That's an interesting thing for Luke to include there because that's an incredibly normal thing. Our, our kids were born in three different hospitals um, in, uh, uh, in three different states, actually, our, our birth children. And, and when all three of them were born, they were given that standard issue hospital cap and, and, and blanket thing. It's blue and it's pink. And based on the pictures I've seen on social media of newborns and whatnot, every hospital on the planet gets the very same little hat and little blanket and it goes with every child because it's very normal it's good for a boy it's good for a girl it's exactly what you do with a newborn mary did with jesus exactly what you would do with any newborn wrap them up tightly and kept him safe the point is that she treated the baby jesus like any other baby this was just a normal child a baby like any other baby it physically looked the same as any other child physically treated the same as any other child no royal robes no fancy clothing jesus didn't come out with a little halo over his head singing just as i am he didn't do that he came out exactly like everyone else the same way no doubt kissing that little boy she wrapped him tightly made sure he was warm she nursed him luke points out that this firstborn son was an utterly ordinary baby. Now we know that he was much more than that as well, but he was certainly not less. This was a completely human experience, fully man, even though as we talked about last night, we know that Jesus was fully God. Born into a, a manger, a feed trough in a stable because there's no place prepared for him. That's the third thing. This royal baby, this normal baby was an outcast. Jesus didn't arrive in a sterile delivery room. It wasn't a comfortable place. It wasn't a clean place. 
You see, when God humbled himself to rescue us, he humbled himself all the way down. John 1.10 tells us he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The entire nation of Israel, church, had awaited the Messiah who was first promised way back in Genesis 3. They had awaited the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. God had been silent for 400 years up to this point. There had been no prophet in Israel. And the Messiah is here, and they don't even notice. What a humble beginning for the king of the world. But that humble beginning was no accident. Mary was right where she was supposed to be. Because this sovereign delivery was a picture of something else entirely. It set the tone for a life of sacrifice, for a life of humility. If you listen to what Paul wrote about this life Jesus was preparing to live, he, he writes in Philippians 1.6, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. The, the manger is, is Jesus emptying himself. He, he didn't get what he deserved, church. Instead, he, he came so that his people didn't get the death that they deserve. He came to die in our place. And that's where the sovereign delivery points us. God moved the most powerful empire on the earth, the most powerful empire in history at the time, to drive one family to Bethlehem to show that he is setting in motion the salvation of of his people. And by that, because of that, church, we have hope. Because of that, we can rest in the midst of what is likely the busiest time of year for so many people. We have hope. We have hope that knowing that this Savior who was promised, who was born, who lived and died so that we could live and not die, so that we could live eternally. We have hope if only we'll repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we do that, we are born again, the Bible tells us. We are brought to spiritual life, and we have hope no matter what the world throws at us because we have a God who is in control of our lives. We have a God who has a good plan for us, Scripture says. Now, we may not always see that good plan, but we trust that the God who is in control will see us through to the end because He's promised us that He would and all of His promises have always held true. Would you pray with me? God, You are so, so good. Your promises do hold true. They carry truth. They ring true. In fact, God, your, your promises are facts. And you have promised that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, Father, I pray that this Christmas everyone who is within the sound of my voice will have called upon the name of Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation in this life and in the next. And Lord, we thank you for this remarkably simple story of a young couple ushering in the birth of their firstborn child. God, on the surface, it is so ordinary. Yet as we dig a little deeper, we see that the events that set 
this incarnation story in motion are rooted all the way back into the foundation of humanity. That God, your hand is sovereignly guiding everything that happens. And Father, we pray that you would reveal that to us in our own lives as well. God, that that you do have a plan for us. It is a good plan that, that God, even though we face some of us incredible darkness right now, God, that that your hand is just as at work in our lives as it was on that night in Bethlehem. God, help us to rest our hope in that today, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen.